right, let's pray. Almighty God, thank you so much for what you've done for us, and we pray that we would listen today with attentive hearts. We pray that you would pierce our hearts, help us to see the sin that you'd have us to turn away from. We pray for uh, Pastor Rick, give him the strength to preach your word clearly and um, pierce our hearts and um, apply our, the, the word to our hearts so that we're able to turn from sin. I pray for those that don't know you today, Lord, that they would uh, today hear your word and it would pierce their hard hearts and they would come to you in uh, repentant faith, Lord. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And we return now to the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 6, and we are picking up at verse 22. John chapter 6 and verse 22. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 22. Hear the word of the Lord. I am going to be reading down to verse uh, 27. John chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. And if you remember the context, this is right after the feeding of the 5,000, right after Jesus walks on water. Now we pick up the narrative. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people, therefore, saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And here in this passage, you have really the, a, a quest for Jesus or a search for Jesus. The people are looking for Jesus frantically. And um, this is something that you have to know, is I cannot discern your heart. I cannot discern the heart of any person. But Jesus can. 
And Jesus exposes the motives of the people here. He, he, he reveals to them what they really want. And in the preaching of the word, he continues to do the same today. His aim is to do that, is to expose the heart. You see, Jesus knows why you go to church. He knows why you came today. Jesus knows why you come forward and take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. He knows why you were baptized. He knows why I preach sermons. He knows why you come to listen. He knows why we teach Sunday school, why we attend midweek Bible studies. He knows why we attend prayer meetings and uh, business meetings of the church. All are naked and open to the eyes of him who sees all. So there's no hiding from Jesus. There, there is no wisdom on earth that is greater than his. There's no way to deceive him. He knows what we want because he created us. So the question really that, that you should ask yourself when you read passages like this one is, why am I seeking Jesus? Why did I seek him? Is it because Jesus can give us fill in the blank? Is that it? For you, you came because he can give you something. What we have to remember is that Jesus doesn't solely give gifts. He is the gift of God. So look at the desperate search. In most Bibles, you'll have uh, verses, verse 23 is sort of parenthetical. It may have a dash or some, some kind of a diacritical mark in the text that kind of sets it off. Uh, verse 23 really ex- uh, provides an explanation for how the people found boats. And of course, it's not 20,000 people. There, 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 there wasn't a fleet of <laughs> fishing boats on the Sea uh, of Galilee, that all of them might mount these ships and and, uh, follow Jesus. It wasn't like that. But uh, many had stayed. Many had stayed, although Jesus had sent some people away. And now there's this desperate, frantic search for Jesus. And even the grammar of the passage most commentators, as you read the Greek text of John, chapter 6, verses 22 and and following, the, the grammar and the syntax is difficult. And what John may be doing, and even if you read this several times out loud, as I just read it here out loud, you could see that there's almost like a frantic despair where they're looking for him. They're really worked up. On the following day, Right after Jesus feeds them, remember during the night, during, uh, you know, it was 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., Jesus comes and he saves his disciples on the sea. But the next day, they all wake up and they're standing. And the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there were no boats there. So they're just standing around and they're looking for Jesus and uh, but there, are, so there's no boats for him 
that he might have traveled on. And they're wondering, you know, where could he have gone? What did he do? Is he hiding in a cave? They don't know. The question that's being answered here, or what they're asking themselves really is, how did he get over there? Now, Capernaum, where they are now, is not mentioned outside of the Gospels. It's the only, the only place where Capernaum is mentioned is in the Gospels. And when Jesus departs from Nazareth, that's where he goes. Uh, Capernaum is Jesus' home base. It's really the center of activity in the Synoptic Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's where a lot of the activity of Jesus' ministry takes place. There's where he calls the fishermen. There's where he meets the, the publican, right? the tax collector. There he performs mighty works. He heals the centurion's son. He heals the nobleman's son. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals the paralytic. He, class, he casts out demons. And this was his home base. This was the center of all of Jesus' activity. And... That's where he is now. And the people, they come. They come looking for him. And it's a frantic search, right? This is where he was last night. There's no boat here. He's not here. Well, there are some boats now. Let's hop in the boat. Maybe he went on the other side. He sent his disciples to the other side. Let's go see if he's over there. So they arrive. What's interesting is that in John 6.59... Same chapter, you could look there, the verse 59, 659. It says that Jesus said these things as he taught in the synagogue. So his home base, Jesus would may have been part of his normal practice just to be teaching in the synagogue. And these people basically, uh, you know, they bust into the synagogue. Right? While Jesus is teaching, maybe he has some scrolls open. He's standing there speaking to the people. And, Rabbi, when did you come here? And yeah, this is a, it is a term of respect. Master, teacher, can mean something like scholar. They're asking Jesus not only when, But what is implied here is how in the world did you get here? They're unwittingly close to asking the right question. And so are we a lot of times. So we come to Jesus and we'll say things like, why won't you fix my marriage? Why won't you help me be more financially responsible? Why won't you root out these sinful desires and passions that wage war in my heart? You see, we, we, in our despair and in our great need, we tend to get very close. Many of you have probably experienced this before if you spent any time in the church. You'll have somebody who has either attended for some times or they begin to attend, and their life is an utter wreck, and it really seems like they're coming along. I mean, like they're talking like 
a Christian. They're asking the right questions. And it, and it seems like everything is starting to come together in this person's life. But they're not asking the right questions because they're not seeking the right things. What people want is for Jesus to fix their problems. Now, Jesus does that, right? Jesus is a master at transforming the dead and raising them up to newness of life. Yet simultaneously, he will plunge those same disciples into great difficulties, as we saw what he did on the Sea of Galilee. He cast his disciples right into a storm that he might deliver them. Because the greatest thing that Jesus has to offer isn't prosperity and comfort and joy and happiness and all of our earthly desires fulfilled. The greatest thing that Jesus offers to sinners is himself. And Jesus gets right to it. Jesus doesn't tell them how he got there. Because he knows what's in their heart. Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Jesus isn't changing the subject either. He's really confronting them. He's getting right down to it. And he says, you saw the signs. He's not just saying that you were present while I did this. He says, because that's not why you came. And really what he's saying to them is, you don't understand the signs. You saw me do this, you don't understand what it means. You don't understand what it means about me and what I was trying to teach you. Remember, when they're on the sea, uh, I read this last week, in Mark chapter 6, verse 32, Mark puts this little note in there that John doesn't have. One of the reasons why Jesus came and was going to walk past them is for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. There was a lack of understanding even on the disciples' part. And now the multitudes, the crowds, they don't understand it either. They don't get Jesus. And that is the situation of many, many churchgoers and churches in America. They don't get Jesus. They don't understand that he is the Lord of the living and the dead. They think Jesus is either a, uh, a democratic socialist or a free market Demo you know, uh, Republican. That's who Jesus is, right? And he is a means by which we will receive some earthly comfort, right? Either we're going to get you know, socialized health care and free everything, or he's going to open up the markets in such a way that we'll be rolling in the dough. Right? We're going to have another Boomer's Part 2. But that's not what Jesus is about. 
Jesus is not about our comfort. Jesus is not about our pleasure. Jesus is about the salvation of sinners. And comforts and pleasures, of course, from a materialistic, temporal, worldly perspective. That's not what he's trying to give us. They were, they were filled. In, in, in chapter 6, verse 12, where it says, so when they were filled, that's a different word. That means when they had, sort of like when they had feasted. It's like so the way that you ladies are going to feel later. But here the word that he uses when he says to them, but because you ate the loaves and were filled, that, that word, what, what it, it's used to, to reference animals gorging themselves. It has, it has it negative connotations. And, and it sort of uh, may carry the meaning that uh, what happened to the people in the book of Numbers when they were eating the quail and uh, it basically became rotten in their mouths because they were stuffing themselves with it. It really does have a negative connotation. And that's what men do. The good gifts of God they waste those gifts upon themselves. God's kindness and His mercy displayed in so many ways to us, we, we waste them. Because of our corrupt desires. So Jesus says to them, verse 27, Do not labor. Do not labor for the food which perishes. So verse 26, they come to look for Jesus and Jesus confronts them with what the issue is. You don't, you don't understand. You want to fulfill your earthly desires and that's not why I came. I'm not a genie. And now Jesus is going to give the people a prohibition, a prescription, a promise, and then he's going to give a pronouncement. I never alliterate, so, you know, you should write that down. So look at the prohibition. Do not labor for the food which perishes. Don't do that. But for the food which endures to everlasting life. Literally, what Jesus is saying is, don't work for this. Work for this. That frantic search for me, where this is where he was last week, where did he go? The, the mental calculations, well, there aren't any boats here. We know that these boats, the fishermen brought here. His disciples left on a boat. He wasn't on a boat. Where could he be? Oh, he's probably in Capernaum because that's where he works. All his wonders, well, let's go, let's uh, use these boats, go to Capernaum. Where is he? He's in the synagogue. Let's go to the synagogue Jesus is saying, don't work for food which perishes. Don't work for that, work for this. The vast majority of his audience 
had a subsistence lifestyle or a subsistence living. They worked for minimal resources. They worked for food, water, and lodging. That was their entire life. It wasn't extra, right? There were no iPads and Jordans and leased vehicles and vacations and none of that. There wasn't any of that. They worked to eat, they worked to drink, and they worked, and hopefully they would have a place to stay. That was their entire life. And Jesus is saying, you have to rearrange your entire life. Don't live that way. The vast majority of people today live the same way. It's really easy to see in America. So all you have to do is just just look around. People live to satisfy their passions. It's very rare that you come across someone who is living so intentionally for the glory and honor of Christ that they're different, right? When people live that way, they're weird. This is very similar to his conversation with the woman at the well. Remember, what did he say to the woman? I have water that, you know, from a well that springs up to eternal life. She's like, well, give me that water because I don't want to come down here with this bucket no more. Labor for eternal life. Do not labor for things that perish. And this word is very, uh, one, no, it, it's an expressive word. There should be an earnest desire to pursue the things of God. It should mark the person. We shouldn't spare anything to obtain this food that Jesus is offering. It's what we need. Salvation must become the the primary object in the life of a person. And I don't just mean initially. I don't just mean you got to get saved, pray the prayer, get baptized. No. Recommit. No. Once a a person is, is... saved by the sovereign grace of God, once they repent and believe the gospel, the, the, the drive and the passion must continue to obtain eternal life. Consider the labor you put into temporal, or even temporal relationships, right? How much, how much work does it take to live uh, for 45 years with another sinner and not, you know, knock each other over the head often, right? To live in such a way where you're honoring God. It, it, you have to labor at it. If you're honest, you have to labor. It's hard work. And even with kids, right? And, and to, 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 to raise them in such a way where um, 
you're loving them and you're teaching them how to love you and honor and respect you and raising them to be uh, uh, hardworking, diligent children. It's exhausting. It really is. And not often, every once in a while, but not, it's very thankless work too. You know, <laughs> the tendency of most people in a relationship is to complain, right? But think of the labor that we put into it. You have to work very hard to make it work. Think of the labor that you've put into your career. Some of you are retired. You worked you work for decades to get to the place where now you can live well, comfortably. Right? Right? You've labored. You've worked. It's not been easy. Now think of the stuff that you have. How much it takes to keep your lawn manicured the way that you like it in your house exterior, interior, as nice as you want. How, how, how much work does it take? Or to, or, or, or to manage all of your creature comforts or the things that you, you enjoy, right? The sports that you like to watch or the sports that you like to partake in, your recreations, all of those things. You have to labor. It's hard work. And we're willing to do it because we love those things. That's why we do it, right? We, we do it because we love it. And this, this happens often. We must labor. Then what Jesus is saying is, don't exhaust yourself so much on those things that you forget what's most important. You know, Jesus isn't saying to be a deadbeat dad, right? Like, don't work hard at being a good... No, that's not his point, right? It's, It's the same thing he says... When he's speaking to the crowds and he says, if anybody loves their mother, their children, or anybody else more than me, he can't be my disciple. He's making a very similar point here. He's not saying that we ought not to labor and be productive in our our homes, in our communities, as employees. He tells us, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's no virtue in being a bum. That's not the point, right? But order of priority is what Jesus is saying to the people. We must labor in the use of all of the appointed means. Everything that God has given us that we might obtain what Jesus is offering. He said, it's a hidden treasure. Well, how do you find a hidden treasure? You got to work for it, right? We must dig for it in his word. We must pursue it in prayer. We must seek it in the corporate gathering of his people. 
We have to uh, daily put off the old man and put on the new man. We must fight to be free from the power and entanglement of sin, particularly the sins that easily ensnare us. This is true laboring. This is how a person gets about doing the work of preserving the soul. There's like um, this food that endures to everlasting life is offered freely. This is not work salvation. I'm not saying that you have to work so that you can qualify to receive it. But the evidence that a person has received it is this insatiable desire for more. I want more. I want to know the Lord more. The food that endures to everlasting life is Jesus himself. It's the word incarnate. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses uh, 2 through 3, Moses is recounting the people's wandering in the desert. And uh, turn there. I'm just going to read those two verses. Uh, Turn there in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And we know why God gave them the bread from heaven. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning at verse 2. It says this. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord." So God put them in the desert in a situation where they were hungry. And then what does he do? He provides for them miraculously. Jesus puts his disciples on a boat and a storm comes. And only thing that, the only thing that can save them is God miraculously coming to save. Why? Because it's only God who can save us. That's the point. I, uh, God did it in the wilderness. He continues to do it. He does it to his people even today. He puts us through great difficulty to show us that he can deliver us. And if you think to yourself, well, you know, that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, you're not God. You're not as wise as he is. And you don't know how to deal with hard-headed humans the way he does. So the bread from heaven teaches the people that they ought to live, be sustained spiritually, by the word of God. The 5,000 loaves, well, 20,000, but the feeding of the 5,000, the fish and the bread, ought to have taught the people. They should have learned that the one who can sustain me is the word of God, Jesus himself. The Jewish people knew this. 
They, they uh, you know, sometimes we read our New Testaments and we see the religious leaders there and we think to themselves, man, all of those religious leaders were way off. But during the intertestamental period, writing uh, on the book of Exodus, on Exodus ch- chapter 16, there's this commentary. And the writer, uh, he says this, Instead of these things, you gave your people food of angels. And without their toil, you supplied them from heaven with bread, ready to eat. Right? Flatbreads fallen from heaven, right? Flatbread pizza. Providing every pleasure and suited to their very taste. For your sustenance maintained, excuse me, for your sustenance, for your sustenance manifested your sweetness toward your children. You know, the way that the bread was sweet would have, should have taught the people God loves us tenderly. And the bread, ministering to the desire of the one who took it, was changed to suit everyone's liking. Everyone loved the manna. And then he continues, why? So that your children, whom you loved, O Lord, might learn that it is not the production of crops that feeds humankind, but that your word sustains those who trust in you. So then Jesus gives a promise now. After he gives this prohibition, he says, don't labor for this, labor for this, negative, positive. He says to them, he gives a promise, which the Son of Man will give you. Who's he talking to? Is he talking to devoted disciples who wanted to follow him and were willing to risk it all to, to believe in him? No, these people were selfish. They just wanted to fill their bellies. He was speaking to people who were not interested in salvation. And he's saying, the Son of Man will give you what you really need, and he will give it to you freely. All you have to do is ask. He was affirming, uh, one author writes, that which needs to be pressed on the half-hearted and those who are occupied with material things. Are you half-hearted? Are you sitting in here half-hearted and occupied with material? material things are you thinking to yourself boy i can't wait for this guy to shut up i can't go to wait to go to wherever i'm going to eat and not hear this guy talk right well if if that's the way you feel right you will die in your sins it is difficult to preserve the balance of truth on the one hand we are anxious to insist that salvation is by grace alone that we are in danger of failing to uphold the sinner's response, but we are at danger of upholding the sinner's responsibility to seek Jesus with all his heart. We have to remember that uh, those of us who are here, who are half-hearted, who have no interest in the things of God, you, you will die in your sins. That, that's uh, that's the, the fact of the matter. Yet simultaneously, salvation is offered to you freely. At the same time, yet you must seek it with all your heart. Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. 
and then his pronouncement. Listen to the pronouncements. He says, For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. When seals were used to certify the content of documents, kind of like notaries do, to certify the credibility of goods, right? So, you know, um, I bought this really, uh, well, I bought some balsamic vinegar. And on the top of the balsamic vinegar, it's like a dab of wax and you bust it open, you know? And I guess it's just fancy to show you that the stuff is supposed to be good. But it, it really, it's a seal, right? It's preserved. It's, it's com- communicates something. The seals were used for these reasons, and they still are. Rulers would even give their seal to those who were acting on their behalf. Kind of like a police officer wears a badge, right? What does the badge reveal? Well, he's working under the authority of the county, state, whoever. And Jesus Jesus is saying that the Father has set his seal upon him. It could be The seal that he's mentioning could be specifically what John the Baptist said. Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So that could be the seal. And that was public. That was done in front front of multitudes. That could be the seal. But most importantly, it's the works that Jesus does. It's the way that he healed the multitudes and he fed and he taught. It was his very presence, who he was, his person, that was a seal that God had sent him. Jesus is not just a, uh, you know, a Middle Eastern uh, teacher of philosophy. He is God in the flesh and his father has set his seal upon him. If you cannot see that, if that draws no interest from you and no desire to follow him, you're not a Christian. That's just the, the fact of the matter. Yet, this same Jesus offers to those who have no interest in him, who have no desire to know his ways, Jesus says to them, come. He, didn't, he continues to invite them. Because it is only he that can uh, cause that desire to arise in the heart of those who do not believe. And he does this by the working of his spirit and through the preaching of his word. So I would invite you to do the same this morning. If you don't know Christ, read the Gospels and pray for God to open your eyes and help, uh, ask for God to help you see that what you're laboring for These temporal things, they will be of no eternal benefit to you. What you truly need is a hunger and a desire to know the Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege and the opportunity of worshiping you. And we ask that you would help us, those of us who are Christians, Lord, to grow in our desire and our longing for you. And those who are here who do not believe, who have no interest in you, Lord, we pray that you would transform them, that you would cause them to be born again by the working of your Spirit. Give them a great concern for their own soul. Give us a concern for their soul also. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, please stand and let's sing the doxology.